Wow. You can't even say in- can't even speak English now. <laughs> so at the time of the incident. <laughs> I just realized what you said. This is Jen. And this is Lisa. And welcome back to Curiosity Syndrome. Episode three. Episode number three. We've got some Duncan. Um, Lisa got me a refresher. Mango pineapple. I got my basic bitch uh, mocha iced coffee. So you don't even do like the, what are the other ones they have there besides like the, what what is it that I get? Oh my God, I can't even think of it now. Ice latte. That's what I get. You don't even do the latte. I never you just had do the- a latte. What's that? Is that the frozen coffee? No, it's just a better version of iced coffee. Well, I don't know why. Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I really have no idea. I thought you were going to teach me some things. I don't know. I legitimately have no idea, but it's pretty good. That's what I that's what I normally get. Okay, well, I guess I might be changing my Dunkin' order. I guess maybe. I think there's like a special milk or something in there. Ooh. I don't know. Special milk. What's your Dunkin' special milk? <laughs> you know what kind it is. Oh, my God. All right. We need to just get into the episode instead of talking about special milk. Their breast milk. That's what we're getting at. Oh, my God. <laughs> Jesus. Nope. That's not what we're talking about today. <laughs> no? Okay. Well, what are we talking about then? Because this one was picked by you. So what made you so curious? About this? About... Not the breast milk. Oh. <laughs> I was like, what the hell? No. no. So this is going to be, this episode, as you can already tell by the title, it's going to be about Chernobyl. Uh, why I'm so curious. Well, for one, I have been to, I, I haven't been to Chernobyl, but I have been to Russia when I was younger, and that was pretty cool. I'm jealous. I mean, it wasn't cool like, oh, so cool. Yeah, I went to Moscow. No, it wasn't cool like that. I guess it was just cool to say that I've been, but it really wasn't that great, I guess you could say. Okay. How old were you? I was 14. Oh, so you were old enough to like at least know I thought you meant like maybe little little no I was like 14 and the museums and stuff were cool but they you know they didn't like us which all right I mean I probably wouldn't like us either I mean, I mean we didn't really we like, like them, them either yeah, so, I mean. so. but um besides that I I don't know what it is about Chernobyl that's always interested me but it wasn't up until you know recently hearing about it in the news again because obviously what's going on in Ukraine made me think of it again and deep dive and I guess mostly what about it is like the why and the how yeah and you just really still we still really don't know everything about it which is is, or like what it's really done to the world and you said you didn't finish the show no i still oh my god (laughs) honestly it's one of my favorite probably my top 10 favorite shows i've watched it like four times if you haven't watched the show obviously it's not 100 percent accurate but it has such a great overall theme you know what is the cost of lies is one of the main quotes in there the the creator of the tv show his name is craig mazin and i think he did a really good job he's a great writer um i don't know if you know this but he's the writer of the borderlands movie what yeah oh shit (laughs) surprise fact (laughs) i love the surprise facts they're my favorite Borderlands uh, is my shit, so. The one that's coming out with Eli Roth directing. Yeah. Craig, Craig Mason's the writer on it. Okay, who okay. Did the I'm already show. excited about it, so. Yeah. I mean, Borderlands signed me up, so. But when, a quote from him that he said is, he said this about, like, the show. The lesson of Chernobyl isn't that modern nuclear power is dangerous. The lesson is that lying, arrogance, and suppression of criticism are dangerous. And mm. I think that's 100% right. That Yeah, that covers... You know some of the shit that happened after the aftermath. So. Yeah. Do you know a lot about nuclear power? Or? No, I don't. I have always been interested in Chernobyl, mostly because of the pictures and stuff I've stumbled across. It's literally just like a creepy, yeah, just abandoned. I mean, ghost I meant, town. yeah, I meant like nuclear power in general. Like, do you know like what in the world it like runs on it? No, I currently? don't. So, are you going to teach me? Do you so want? I so, Professor I want Jen? you to think about. Do you know what an aircraft carrier is? Yeah. I want you to think about how giant that ship is. It's like a floating island. Mm-hmm. What would you think it runs on? Well, now I'm going to say nuclear power. <laughs> yeah. Most people don't don't think that. I mean, how how would they have that much gas to power that thing? I never thought about that. I just yeah. assumed. It runs on a, it runs on a reactor, yeah. All of them in America do. Okay. All of the navy the navy actually has their own 
um, nuclear science wing. Oh. And they actually learn all about that down in Charleston. It's where they oh, do. All, that's okay. where they do all their training. I was gonna say something about the ship that's up there in Charleston. Um, I'm not sure if that. I mean, that was an aircraft like carrying ship, mm-hmm. right? So. I think so. Yeah, the thing's huge. So yeah. I guess I never even being on that and going through it. I never was. You never like, think about it. Oh, what what powered the ship? So Chernobyl. Yeah. One thing about Chernobyl is it really scared a lot of people about nuclear power that they don't even think about it now. That's fair. This freaked me out. Do you, did you ever have to, when you were in school, this is for all my oldies out there, my <laughs> geriatrics, <laughs> did you ever have to do nuclear um, emergency testing? No. No? Mm-mm. So they used to make us either get on under our desks and cover our heads and we would have to like ball up or do it out in the hallway lined up and like with our hands over our head in no. case of a nuclear bomb. That's no, we just, we just did that for like a bomb threat. See, like okay. they would do, it was never a nuclear bomb, it was just... Bomb. I just remember it always being with nuclear bombs. So, all um, the little... are you sure you didn't just imagine that? <sighs> Maybe <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I know, but another thing, I actually just learned this recently. I don't know why I never thought of it, but NASA uses nuclear power to run their rovers that are on Mars. Oh shit! I, I mean, it makes it, it makes sense. Like, what are they going to run on electricity? Yeah, exactly. on Mars. <laughs> This aliens up there, you know, fueling them up when they need it. Elon Musk is up there. Oh my God, whatever. He's got it is. Tesla chargers all over <laughs> Mars, dude. And that's how the rovers get power. No, no, uh, no. They definitely do not run on that. Oh, okay. the, the rover that's one of the rovers that's up there now, the real big one. Do you know what its name is? Oh God. Do you know what its name is? This is the one that's been there for. It's been there for about ten years Why now. Can I not think of curiosity yeah curiosity (laughs) yeah it's been there for almost 10 years and it runs on 11 pounds of plutonium that's it that's kept it going for almost 10 years and i was gonna say it's been a long time since they put it put it up there yeah i don't know if you knew but now you do (laughs) i do thank you professor jen for my you're welcome for our lesson we just had and then when we go to mars and there's tesla chargers we can maybe visit the rover and (laughs) so be like hey do you want to charge your electricity or do you still want to use that nuclear reactor that's been powering you for 10 years yeah i'd probably stay with that i mean you're only gonna get like 40 miles in a tesla (laughs) (laughs) all right all right all right let's start with I guess the beginning where the current time was. So right now in it wasn't Russia, it was the Soviet Union, mm-hmm. aka the USSR. Cold War's going on. You know, there was the Iron Curtain. The Soviet Union didn't want the West in their business. And right now also Mikhail Gorbachev, he's the current Soviet leader. He also ends up being the last of the Soviet Union because it dissipated soon after Chernobyl, which they believe Chernobyl was actually the main cause of it. Mm-hmm. And actually wasn't called the Chernobyl plant. The official name of the plant was the Vladimir Lenin Nuclear Power Plant. And it was originally commissioned on September 26, 1977. And it was fully completed in 1983. After it was finished, it consisted of four RBMK nuclear reactors. And it powered 10% of what's modern-day Ukraine. Right before the accident, there were two other reactors that were set to open within two years, and it would have made Chernobyl the largest nuclear power plant in the world. And near Chernobyl, there was a small town called Pripyat, and that was about 10 miles northwest. That's where a lot of the scientists, the workers, and their families live. And Lisa, why don't you tell us a little bit more about Pripyat? All right, so Pripyat was... Pripyat. Pripyat. (laughs) It's so proper. I'm trying, guys. So it was located in modern-day Ukraine. And at the time of the incident, it was part of the Soviet Russia. Wow, I almost said Soviet Russia. (laughs) Soviet Russia. At the time of the incident, it was located inside the Soviet Republic of Ukraine. Mm -hmm. So the construction of the power plant began in 1970 in a remote area near Ukraine's border. The location was chosen because it was pretty close, but still they decided a safe distance away from the capital of Ukraine. Mm -hmm. There was also already a steady water supply from the river of Pripyat. Pripyat. (laughs) and uh, an existing railway line. So the plant was the first ever to be built in the country, and concurrent to the plant's constructions, the Soviet Union's ninth Atomogard? Atomogard. In English, it's basically like Atom. Yeah, so I think it basically, yeah, Atomic City. (laughs) So it was being built three kilometers away. How far is that? An amount of miles. How many kilometers are in a mile? We don't know. (laughs) <laughs> okay. I'm just blank. I don't, I don't know. know. <laughs> I don't know. A We're mile? on the metric system here. I don't, are, I don't, 
Are what miles the metric system? I don't know. Listen, anyway, continue. Okay. No, okay. <laughs> oh my god, Imperial. I meant Imperial. <laughs> so the city was being built three kilometers away, and it was later to be named Pripyat. The city was built for the plant's 50,000 operators, builders, support staff, and their families. So it was literally built around the power plant. Mm-hmm. That's crazy to think about. Yeah. Like, you can't really tell from any pictures of the plant, but that building is huge. Yeah. Like, it is ginormous. So it's just crazy to me that that was the actual reason that whole city was built. Like, <laughs> And a lot of people, when they saw it, they kind of were like, wow, this is kind of... Because everything looked the same, but everybody loved it because it had a lot of... Um, what's the word I'm looking for? A lot of amenities and stuff that a lot of other towns didn't have. Oh, yeah. It's beautiful. I mean, mm-hmm. even now with its ghostly pictures you see, but yeah. I mean, they had like everything, a music school... That pool, they had a public pool, yeah. It was very nice. According to statistics, Pripyat's population growth was around 15,000 people, uh, and 800 of which which were babies that were born in the town, and the rest came from all over the USSR. The town was home to five schools and more than 5,000 pupils between them. And by the time of the incident, it was actually a very well-established home to many people. Like we said, I mean, they had everything. I mean, it was literally a little community just for this power plant. In a lot of other parts of the USSR, if you didn't live in a place like this, you weren't going to get like access to the best food, to the best supplies, to the best anything. But because they were in that nuclear atom city, they had so many, so many advantages. Oh, yeah. They were well taken care of for sure. But let's get into the first part of the Chernobyl disaster, which was the actual accident. This is going to be a lot. I'm going to try to do the best I can to explain a lot of what happened um even i don't understand a lot of parts but that's fair i mean it is a little confusing it's literally nuclear power and we're not nuclear scientists so i, I mean, mean we could be i couldn't be i know oh. i'm not smart <laughs> <No>. <laughs> all right you might be <laughs> so i'm gonna start i'm gonna name five men really quick now there are a lot of other men but i'm gonna name these five because they had a lot of important little parts There was Anatoly Dyatlov. He was the deputy chief engineer. He was on site at the time of the accident. Viktor Brukhanov. He was the plant director. Nikolai Famin. He was the chief engineer. Alexander Akimov, the shift supervisor. Leonid Toptanov, the senior reactor control engineer. Now, Brukhanov actually was there when Chernobyl was built. He also helped with the building of the entire Atomtown. So he's been there since the beginning. And this all started because they were performing a safety test and they had tried this test three times before and it didn't work any of them. But if it was accomplished, the three men, the main men are going to be Anatoly Dyatlov, Viktor Bukhanov, and Nikolai Fomin. We're going to focus on them three for now. But if they got every, if they accomplished this test, it was going to lead to promotions for all three of them. Mm-hmm. And now I'm going to try to explain how a nuclear reactor works. Nuclear power comes from a process called fission, which is the splitting of atoms, which end up generating heat. And that happens in the core of the reactor. And I'm talking like a lot of heat. They use elements like plutonium and uranium because they split apart so easily when undergoing the fission process. They pump water constantly into the reactor to absorb the heat, and that creates steam, which flows out of the reactor into a type of turbine, and that generates electricity. Does that make sense? Yes, that is, thank you for that, For because I, let me tell you, these books and all this stuff confuse mm-hmm. me sometimes, so that was, yes, I like it. Basically, they force these atoms to split apart, and then their ne- their neutrons are, like, flying out, and the neutrons will hit other atoms, which splits them, and it just gets real hot, because they're all going, bow, 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 bow. Yes, that makes jumping sense. all over the place. Beep, beep, beep. Like, bam, bam, and it just keeps going, it's nonstop. All right, so an RBMK reactor normally operates at 3,200 megawatts. Remember that number, 3,200 megawatts. All right. In this particular model of reactor, it's a graphite water reactor, and they use graphite blocks in the core to increase reactivity and to maintain control of the fission process so the atoms just aren't flying out of control. Mm -hmm. They use boron control rods because boron absorbs neutrons, Mm -hmm. and that stops that chain reaction. The more rods that are in the core, the less power, and obviously the less that are in there, the more power. Right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So the safety test was, in case of a loss of power, they had three backup diesel generators, and these would power water pumps for the coolant, because we don't want the reactor to get too hot, because that leads to a meltdown. Mm -hmm. 
So these generators would come on, but they took about 60 to 75 seconds to kick in. They did have the emergency core cooling system that would supply water to the core, but that would only be about 45 seconds. I'm really oversimplifying it, but basically they believe the residual energy from the turbine, that's what spins to generate the electricity. They thought with it slowing down, it would still generate enough electricity to power the pumps instead of the emergency system. Okay. It would cover mm-hmm. that gap. Time. Right. Yep. And the test steps were as follows. It would take place during a scheduled shutdown that was already set to happen. The reactor power would be turned to about 700 to 1,000 megawatts. The turbine would stay at normal speed, and they, four out of the eight water pumps would be supplied with outside power, while the other four were powered by that turbine. Okay. And they were going to measure the output of the turbine to see if it would be enough energy before the generators fully came online. The test was scheduled for the day shift on April 25th, since they already had that scheduled shutdown that I mentioned. Mm-hmm. It was going to be for routine maintenance. They knew about it. They were prepped for it. So they began reducing the power of the reactor around 1.06 a.m. So by the time the day shift arrived, it would already be at that 700 to 1,000 power level. While they were going about the day, waiting for it to reach the power level, mm-hmm. they turned off the emergency core cooling system, which they had to have approval from the site engineer, Nikolai Fumin. He approved it. At 12.15 p.m., they were supposed to perform the test. But a local power station nearby went down at 2 And the grid controller from that station contacted Chernobyl and asked them not to reduce the power any further so they could continue to meet the demand because it was in the middle of the day for for power, you know, for the city. Mm -hmm. So they postponed the test. They did not turn back on the emergency system. I know, like, today they don't know if that really affected what happened. But, I mean, that's kind of not safe. I was going to say, it doesn't sound like it's a good thing. No, no. And by now, the day shift is leaving. Mm -hmm. Their shift's up. You know, they're the ones who knew all about it. And the evening shift is coming in. And it wasn't even until like 11 that the grid controller was like, oh, okay, you can go back to what you were doing. And like by then, the evening shift was leaving. And now the night shift is coming in. Mm -hmm. That brings us back to little old Anatoly Dyatlov. Good old Dyatlov. Once again, he was the deputy chief engineer. He helped design this test. So he was there to follow through with it. So he's been there this whole time waiting for this test to go on. Mm Mm-hmm. Akimov, who I mentioned before, the shift supervisor, he was there with Toptonov, who, by the way, he was only 25. He'd, oh, only, wow. work, he'd only worked there for three months. Oh, so young. He was like one of the senior control engineers. Yeah. Well, they reached the 720 megawatt output needed around 12.05 a.m., but there's a phenomenon called xenon poisoning, which I don't, I don't really understand, but I'll try to explain. Because the reactor was so low on power, the byproducts coming from the core weren't burning off as quickly as they should have been, so this caused the power level to drop substantially to 500 megawatts. Which, remember, it's supposed mm-hmm. to be between what? 700 and 1,000? Yes. Okay, yeah. No one really knows what happens during the next power level drop. It could have been equipment failure. It might have been something Toptanov did. We really don't know. But it went down to 30 megawatts. That's a not in between the numbers it needs to be in. So not at all. <laughs> Dyatlov at one point thought like the reactor stalled. Right. So Dyatlov asked Toptonov to increase the power, and Toptonov was like, "I'm not doing this. The reactor's unstable. I'm not increasing the power." Yeah, that sounds like a dumb thing to do. And Dyatlov threatened him. He said, "If you're not going to take out more control rods, you're not going to work in this nuclear industry again." Mm. And he just basically started there, you know. Yeah. So he did. What he was told, he took out more of the control rods to increase the power level from that 30 megawatts, which, remember from earlier, less rods, more power. More power, yep. Well, when they did this, the power level did start to increase, and in about 20 minutes, it reached 200 megawatts. Still not there. Still not there. (laughs) We're still not at 700. Um, And so Dyatlov had them start preparing for the test, so they turned on a few cooling pumps to create more steam, and then they even took out more control rods like more than they were even allowed to they took out nearly all of them so all of this basically made the core extremely unstable and they began the test at 123.04 seconds in the morning and then the power started rising real quick mm-hmm. there's a computer called the scala and it records everything they do like every technological step and it showed that a scram was initiated and that's where they pushed the emergency button mm-hmm. and that's the az5 button and that was pushed at 1 40 seconds a.m okay can we just take a second it's called the scram button 
how much like that is literally on point like literally get out scram because <laughs> it's supposed to it's a we're gonna get there in a minute but right. you're about to, you're about to find out oh, I'm so, excited. so they think they think that akimov is the one who called for the button for, to be pressed because they think it was either to finish up the test to simulate a loss of power or to stop the reactor from increasing they didn't know somebody pushed it mm-hmm. um and it, that inserted all of the control rods back in oh. to the reactor and in an RBMK reactor, it has graphite tips, which did I say earlier that graphite increases? I don't think you did. Okay. Well, graphite basically help increases reactivity. That's why they keep it in the core. Mm-hmm. And it had graphite tips on the control rods, which were supposed to be all made out of boron, but it was cheaper. We'll get into mm-hmm. that a little bit later, too. <laughs> yeah, we will. So when they, all of these rods came in, and with that xenon poisoning and all the steam and a bunch of other nuclear stuff, I don't really understand. So when they put <laughs> all, when they put all of those rods back in, it caused the core to rapidly gain power. It jumped to thirty thousand megawatts. Holy shit! Remember, it only normally it only goes to thirty two hundred. Yeah. Now it's at thirty fucking thousand, and there were two explosions. The first one at one, I, this this is weird to me. So the first explosion went off at one, two, three, four, five. Mm. Isn't that interesting? That's crazy. And they think it was a steam explosion, and it's what shot the reactor cover through the roof. Mm-hmm. And then the second one happened two to three seconds later and was an even bigger explosion than the first. It basically dispersed the damaged core and all the graphite from inside the core, along with a bunch of other shit were flying everywhere, and the core was exposed, and there's fire and smoke burning through the roof. And I don't know, God, you didn't watch the show. <laughs> did you finish the first episode? I did. Okay. Well, in the first episode of the show, when it explodes, there's like a blue light. Mm-hmm. That yep. actually happened because that's when radiation is basically just like fucking up oxygen molecules. Like yeah. it's just burning straight through. I was going to say it literally just looked like a beam. Of yeah, blue it's, it's called the ionization, but radiation is just eating the air, basically. Yeah. Jesus Christ. At the time, it was unthinkable that a reactor could explode. Meltdown? Yes. Explode? Can't happen. Can't happen. Mm-hmm. And Dyatlov... God, don't even get me started on him. Dyatlov was in complete denial that it exploded. He was like, there's no way. Reactors don't explode. Yeah. Didn't happen. Even when men were coming in and saying the core is gone, he didn't believe them. There was one man. His name was Valery Hadamchuk. He was a senior operator who was near the explosion when it happened, and he was the first to die. They don't know if he just got incinerated when it exploded or if it was from all of the stuff falling on him. But he still, like, they were never able to get his body out. That's insane. And I'm going to assume he probably, literally, if he was there when that shit exploded, he's, like, probably just gone. Like Yeah, there's probably probably nothing left, so... Mm -hmm. And everyone's running around trying to figure out what happened. And Dyatlov was so adamant it was just a hydrogen tank that exploded. Mm. So he ordered Akimov and Toptanov to go manually open water valves to cool the reactor. Mm. You know, the reactor that no longer exists. Exactly. Even though they kind of had an idea that they were walking into their death, they still went and did it. And they faced massive amounts of radiation. And they were throwing up as they did and passing out. And the water is just flooding out of these pipes yeah. there's because there's no reactor left exactly and by the time Brukhanov, the plant director he was obviously home asleep because they called him by the time he arrived a lot of the men had gotten out and they were trying to put out fires and dyatlov met with him when Brukhanov asked what happened he said i don't know i don't understand any of it so he was basically like i don't know what happened nothing happened it's fine pretty much he like, was like i don't know i did everything right i don't know what you're talking about and then that's when the firefighters and stuff were coming so. Right. So after the explosion, they mm-hmm. tried to reach the firefighters, but obviously the lines were already dead. Oh, However, firefighters were already en route because some they, of them had witnessed the explosion. I mean, how do you fire. miss that? Right. I mean, mm-hmm. literally, like we said, the giant blue light beam, like yeah. shooting out the top of the building. I think at one point somebody thought it was just floodlights going on. I mean, that's it looked like a yeah. giant bright light that like you yeah. can see from that's, space. That's like crazy. That's crazy. <laughs> So they played a crucial role in stopping the horrible accident from becoming even worse, if Mm -hmm. that's possible. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But upon arriving at the scene, within just a few minutes after the explosion, 23-year-old Vladimir Pravik, uh, he knew that they were not staffed nor equipped enough to handle the situation. Nobody would have been. Exactly. So he called for backup from any and all units in Pripyat and Kiev area, and that's when he split his men into two teams to concentrate on Unit 3's roof and the turbine hall. 
But like many shortcuts that were taken during the construction, the roof was supposed to be covered in non-combustible material. However, none was readily available at the time. Of course not. Right. So to proceed on schedule, they used bitumen Mm. instead. Now, bitumen was highly flammable. Of course it was. It was actually banned from industrial use in the Soviet Union for over a decade at that point. So the bitumen melted in the intense heat, of course, uh, which in turn made the firemen's boots become stuck, causing limited mobility, which also their lungs began to fill up with extremely toxic smoke. Like they didn't even know. I know. They're just up there trying to fight what they thought was a fire. And And people who do know aren't saying saying anything. Despite the fire crew being a nuclear plant fire brigade, most of them didn't seem to comprehend the full dangers of the radiation. Uh, the other crew who were called in, they had no fucking idea what they were getting into. To them, the fire was just a fire, and they were fighting it as such. They hadn't thought much about the radiation until they began to vomit and become weak. And some even then still thought that it was just from smoke inhalation. Yeah, like, they don't they don't know. Yeah, I they mean, don't know. it's a huge fire, so. The second wave of firefighters arrived 25 minutes after the explosion. Fires were sent up to the roof for further containment, and none of the men who went up survived. Yeah, the roof is where all the graphite blocks from the core were, and it was one of the most radioactive places probably on Earth at that moment. And they were just like, here you go. Go, go to the there. roof. Put yeah. the fire out. Yeah. <laughs> so it came out after the accident that no proper full fire drill was ever conducted. Jesus. Not even one. So they had literally no idea. I mean, they're just blinded to all this. It's they're just trying to help. Exactly. Mm-hmm. When everything but the blaze inside the reactor was put out, 37 crews, which included 186 firemen, had arrived to fight the blaze. Many of the men were rushed to the hospital in Pripyat, which was in no way equipped to deal with radiation sickness. So doctors and nurses even began to be sick from the patients that were coming in because uh, their clothes were so contaminated that they had became radioactive. Mm-hmm. Um, they actually removed them in the basement of the hospital, and they're still there today. That's, oh, that's crazy to think about. I know. And they're it's still insane. radioactive today. That's mm-hmm. not surprising. Uh, there was only one qualified doctor at the plant, 28-year-old Valentin Belikin. He arrived around 30 minutes after the explosion. He raced there with no knowledge of what was happening whatsoever. After arriving, he also discovered that the plant's aid station was basically empty. There was nothing there. Oh, my God. He began to notice a pattern in the patient's symptoms, like a headache, vomiting, dry throat, etc. Uh, he knew exactly what this meant. Yet he selflessly stayed for hours to tend to the plant workers and firemen until he himself became too ill to be able to do so anymore. Wow, that's, wow. It's horrible, but I mean, thank, mm-hmm. thank that guy because yeah. I mean, he risked his literal life to do that. Yeah, he so. knew like he was getting sick. Oh yeah, and, and it's crazy. I wonder what was going through his head at that time because he knew exactly what was happening and he was like, I have to help still. Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. So a second doctor soon arrived, Dr. Yvonne Orlov. He spent three hours inside of the reactor trying to stabilize the firefighters until, as what he described, a metal taste in his mouth and a and headache sickness. And even the ambulance drivers who were transporting uh, people to the Pripyat hospital, they became sick from their passengers as well. They used helicopters to drop Stan and Boren over the reactor. They couldn't fly right over it due to the dangers of it being an open reactor, <laughs> literally. So it took a thousand flyovers to let the wind carry the sand and the boron to put out the fire. And because of the clusterfuck that Dot Love and them caused, basically saying it was nothing uh, and there was like no damage. It's clearance, just, just a water yeah, tank. Yeah, it's like hydrogen um, tank. Yeah, it's nothing. It's fine. So clearance to start an evacuation was denied at first as they believe it was basically just a tiny little hiccup. And no one was even warned. So on Saturday, the 15,000 children of Pripyat went to school and the other residents continued their routines for the day. I know Saturday for school was crazy, but they go six days a week there. Oh, I didn't know that. I, I seen that. I was like, oh, oh. fun fact. <laughs> Luckily, the town was fairly small and they were all workers and family of the workers. So word began to spread about the accident. So anyone who did try to leave town were met by police roadblocks. I'm going to just assume this was probably because they were trying to contain it. Not let word get out that something happened. Yeah, they. I think at one point, one of, one of the directors of, I don't know, whatever, the Communist Party was like, don't let people leave, cut mm-hmm. off the phone lines, don't let any misinformation. They didn't want hysteria to spread. And on top of this, the police were staying silent about the situation, which obviously caused some panic in the residents. I mean, I'd be like, why are you blocking me here? Why can't I leave? Mm-hmm. What's going on? So I'd be freaked out, too. So in their panic, uh, a lot of the residents tried to escape by going around the blocks from the police uh, through the surrounding forest. Several leaders of the commission got into a helicopter and flew above the reactor and finally confirmed the reactor was indeed completely destroyed. So on the evening of the 26th, it was decided to to evacuate the people within a 10-kilometer range of the plant. 
they decided to use buses to get people out so they wouldn't cause traffic jams, leaving their personal vehicles and such. So they had 1,100 buses from Kiev drive overnight to get to them and get them out of there. When doing this, everyone believed, oh, we're coming back. It's just a little, it's nothing because no one's saying anything. They only grabbed like a suitcase of stuff. Yeah, I mean, there was an announcement to bring papers and such just in case, but a lot of people didn't bring anything Mm -hmm. because it was, they were told to travel light Mm -hmm. as they thought they were coming back. They were coming back. So this makes me so sad. All of the families left behind pets. I think some people even tried to sneak their pets, and then they were like, no. But I think a few were able to get some out in suitcases. Again, like, they thought they were coming back, so they left their pets. Some of them were locked up. Some they did release to run free, I mean, while they were gone, because no one knew what exactly was happening when they were coming back. It was just in the dark, running around, doing what you're told. It's, I couldn't imagine. So it would actually take six more days before they called everyone to evacuate in the area up to only 30 kilometers like that's it but i knew 30 kilometers was 19 miles <laughs> well how the hell did you know that because i found it <laughs> i don't know how much 10 is i don't know how to do the math i only knew 30 meant 19 it's like a, a quarter i don't know anyways god damn it <sighs> so all in all a hundred thousand people were examined in the days and weeks after the accident and eighteen thousand uh, required hospitalization so after the damage of reactor four was basically under controlled they decided to bring in military and civilians to assist in the project which would later become known as liquidators because they were liquidating the disaster's effects yeah so like the russian version of the word in their language doesn't mean like liquidator like we think liquidator and that's like ooh. yeah <laughs> it's not it wasn't as bad in russian i mean it's still, this still is bad horrible but job. you know <laughs> So it consisted of around 240,000 men and women working within the 30-kilometer zone in 86 and 87. It later did grow to around 600,000 people around 1990, and they also received certificates confirming their status as liquidators. So their shifts as a liquidator for decontamination, they would range from literally just a few minutes up to 10 hours, depending on the levels of the radiation in that area. That's cr- It's crazy that even like after they still were like, oh, go in there. Yeah. Even though it's radioactive, have I know. fun. Like, they just literally just drop them into this shit show. I mean, could yeah. you imagine having to only be able to work in somewhere for a few minutes where you have to run out, figure out, like, I don't know exactly how they yeah, did the procedure. That's insane. Like, so I know we've been talking a lot about radiation and radioactivity, and now I want to get into how that affects humans. Yes. When you are exposed to high levels of radiation, you get what's called acute radiation syndrome, ARS. It causes burns, nausea, vomiting. Your skin and organs basically start to melt. Oh, my God. I don't don't really know another way to describe it. I know you mentioned earlier that the first responders would say they can taste metal. That's another sign that you're probably near something radioactive and... They they would also say that it felt like pins and needles on their face. Oh my God. And I'm going to tell a story. This was from one of the books I read. This was called Voices from Chernobyl. It was by Svetlana Alexievich. And this was the first story in the book. And this is the story of Ludmila Ignatenko. Her husband, Vasily, he was one of the first responders. He was a firefighter. And they didn't know what they were dealing with. He received a lethal amount of radiation and he slowly died over 14 days. Oh my God. And you, if you watch the show, you can see it. And even reading it, it was so sad. Mm-hmm. And she said, this is directly from the book, he started to change every day I met a brand new person. The burn started to come up to the surface, in his mouth, on his tongue, his cheeks. At first there were little lesions, and then they grew. It came off in layers, as white film, the color of his face, his body, blue, red, gray-brown. Could you imagine watching the person you love go through that? And oh they do God. show it in the show. She never, like, left his side. And they kept telling her, you need to get away from him. You need to mm-hmm. get away from him. Someone even said, quote, you have to understand this is not your husband anymore, not a beloved person, but a radio- radioactive object with a strong density of poisoning. That's awful. And, like, she didn't, It's she, true. It's sad, but it's true. She never, she never left him. Right. She was beside him the whole time, and they kept trying to leave, and she never, I mean, she didn't really understand. I was going to say, I seen, um, once the, they got to Moscow in the actual radiation hospital, the unit, 
Oh, um, yeah. She followed him there. She went from Kyiv to Moscow, and that's like 12 hours. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I read that most of the firefighters were, like, literally contained. Like, they were mm-hmm. just... By it's them, horrible. They were like, by they themselves. Were just, yeah. Now, with the Atlov... Bitch. This was the second time he was exposed to what's normally considered a lethal dose of radiation. He used to work on nuclear submarines, and he was exposed previously. But somehow, he survived. I, I was literally about, what is this motherfucker? Like, Wolverine? Like, how? I don't know. The I don't fuck? know. But overall, wow. there were 31 deaths attributed to the immediate disaster, and that is still the official count from the USSR. Mm-hmm. I mean, who knows how many people actually died due to radiation, cancer. They really don't know. It, it's a, probably a lot less than what people assume, but... I'm going to try to name these 31 people. If ever in the future, if anybody related to them listens to this, I tried my best to find out how each name is pronounced. It was hard to find the pronunciations as well. I mean, I tried and tried myself. and Yeah. Most of, most of them did die from acute radiation syndrome. I think there was maybe one or two who, like, Valeri died in the explosion, and there was another gentleman who died in an explosion. But right. a lot of them stayed behind to try to put out the fires and stuff and try yeah, they're to... actually heroes legitimately mm-hmm. so alexander akimov shift leader anatoly baranov senior electrical engineer Vyacheslav brosnik senior turbine operator victor degtyarenko reactor operator vasily ignatenko firefighter yekaterina ivanenko security guard valeri hadamchuk senior pump operator victor kibinok Lieutenant Firefighter, Yuri Konoval, Electrician, Alexander Kudryatsev, Engineer, Anatoly Kyrgyz, Senior Reactor Operator, Alexander Lilichenko, Deputy Chief of Electrical Shop, Viktor Lopatyuk, Electrician, Klavdia Lazganova, Security Guard, Alexander Navyuk, Turbine Inspector, Ivan Orlov, Physician, Konstantin Prichuk, Senior Engineer, Valery Paravoschenko, Foreman, Georgi Popov, Vibration Specialist, Vladimir Pravyuk, Lieutenant Firefighter, Viktor Proskryakov, Engineer, Vladimir Savankov, Vibration Specialist, Anatoly Ivanvich, Electrician, Vladimir Shishenik, Systems Adjuster, Anatoly Sitnikov, Deputy Chief Operational Engineer, Vladimir Tashura, Senior Firefighter, Nikolai Titenuk, Firefighter, Leonid Toptanov, Senior Reactor Control Chief Engineer. Nikolai Voschuk, Squad Commander Firefighter. Yuri Vershanin, Turbine Inspector. And Leonid Talyatnikov, he was the Chief of Power Plant Fire Department. He was the only one who died later. He died in 2004 from cancer, but they did put him on the official list. When you hear 31 people and you see it, you you only hear of a couple, so I was like, I'm going to... I think it was nice to list them all and, and the things that they did. I mean, they deserve... To be remembered. Yeah. I mean, they were killed Even. in an unfortunate event that was not their fault. So there mm-hmm. were actually previous accidents at other power plants, but it was kept under wraps because mm-hmm. these RBMK reactors were built to be more cost effective. Um, but it's not well known that it was a pretty severe accident at Chernobyl. Before this major accident, there was a partial core meltdown in Unit 1 that occurred on September 9th in 1982. The operators were unsure of what was happening, and they kind of just ignored the alar- alarms uh, for 30 minutes. <laughs> yeah, let's just... Let's just... Mm-hmm. And nah, the, we'll listen to it. The KGB, which my knowledge of the KGB was literally just from Archer, so... The KGB is like CIA on steroids, dude. Yeah, but they were investigating at the time, and they totally just ignored the operators who were ignoring the alarms uh, and not acting faster to fix the situation. So they were like, yeah, it was fine. Nothing happened. They didn't ignore Mm -hmm. alarms. Like, really? In 1975, there was an incident eerily similar to the accident. Um, Unit 1 was restarted after routine maintenance. So it reached 800 megawatts. Operators disconnected one of its two turbines due to the fault. And at 2 a.m., someone disconnected the only remaining turbine. So that left them to battle with the decision to give it more power or let it shut down. So they decided to raise the power, which caused the reactor to reach 1,720 megawatts before it was actually brought under control. So a government investigation was launched, Hmm. which found serious design faults. Wow, no way. And in 1976, it was recommended that the rod design be changed and for a fast-acting emergency protection to be installed. 
The new designs for the rods were drawn up, but of course, never put in. And if you remember, that's what the problem was. Mm-hmm. When they inserted all those rods, they part of them had graphite on it, and that's... And they knew. Yep. They mm-hmm. knew. I mean, obviously, the men there didn't know. Yeah. But KGB knew. They knew. So in 1981, a report was submitted to the KGB citing several concerns over the quality of the equipment and stated that there had been 29 emergency shutdowns mm. in the first four years of the operation. Now, only eight of those were actually caused by employees, so the rest were technical faults. But guess what? Nothing was done about it. Mm. It was mm. covered up. And then you had Chernobyl, mm-hmm. which when the scientists were trying to figure out how radioactive everything was, they pulled out their dosimeters, which only went up to 3.6 Ronkin per hour. Like, that was as high as it went, and that's what it was saying. So that's what they went around. Oh, there's not a problem. There's only 3.6 Ronkin. Well, that's mm. as high as the machine I went. I was going to say, I mean, if it's at that point, you should probably figure out another way to actually measure it. They had other dosimeters, like higher level reading ones, but they were locked in a safe. And they couldn't get to it. They couldn't get to it. Oh my gosh. But eventually when they did test it later with like a higher range one, though around the core, it was 20,000 Rontgen, which Rontgen is how it's leveled. I don't know exactly. (laughs) I don't don't know exactly how to go into it, but that's- Nuclear power. That's what it is. Over the time of the whole core exposure, it was the equivalent to 400 times the amount of radiation as the Hiroshima atomic bomb. Just going into the air. They refused to tell the rest of the world as well, even as the winds were blowing smoke over to Eastern Europe. You know, I think it was in Sweden. They started getting radiation readings there, and that's when they called, and they were like, uh... What's, What's going on? Yeah, one of their scientists, man's, <laughs> he yeah. came in with a lab coat that tested positive for particles. Oh, my God. So the USSR's general secretary, Mikhail Gorbachev, chose not to even address the public about the incident for three weeks. Now, with Gorbachev, he actually didn't even, they wouldn't even tell him what was going on. I was going to say, he didn't know. He When he found out about the issues with the reactors, he was pissed. So he finally announced to the world that, all the information relating to the accident would be released, but it still remained classified inside the Soviet Union, meaning that the residents of Chernobyl knew less about their situation than anyone else in the world. But everyone else knew. Yeah, everyone else mm-hmm. knew but them. In a conference in Vienna, uh, Dr. Valery Lagasov. Lagasov. Okay, see, I told you I was going to struggle with these. I'm sorry. Um, and his fellow scientists were questioned by global experts for three hours. He was forced to keep most things under wraps regarding the ac- accident. KGB. Uh-huh. Uh, and was being half honest with his speech that he was given. So he felt really guilty about it. He was later stated saying, I did not lie in Vienna, but I did not tell the whole truth. He then decided to take a full stance against the official explanation. He criticized the underlying problems with the RBMK unit and the nuclear operators receiving poor training. And because of this, his reputation, of course, was ruined. His health was declining from the exposure of the radiation from the site Sadly, he ended up hanging himself on the second anniversary of the disaster. Like on the exact day. On that day. Horrible because, I mean, he was just doing what he was told. He yeah. knew what happened and he knew. He he was one of the ones who investigated and he found what happened. Yeah. So he was like, I'm going to tell everyone. And obviously they were like, fuck you. Like, yeah. He went to, when he went to Vienna, he KGB threatened him. So mm-hmm. he didn't tell the whole truth. Like you said, his reputation was ruined. Mm-hmm. He still worked, still has, you know, had his family, did all this and this, but he was a pariah. Oh, basically. No one gave a shit. The, he turned his back on his whatever but before before he committed suicide he actually recorded all these tapes Mm -hmm. and after he died they could not ignore the tapes yeah and that's what actually made them change the reactors yeah oh so the reactors no no they they went and fixed all the reactors after okay i thought you meant they changed their official like report that they initially put out which was complete bullshit so well speaking of valeria lagasov he was the deputy director of the kirchtov Institute of Atomic Energy, and then we have another gentleman named Boris Sherbina. He was the vice chairman of the Council of Ministers, and they were both considered loyalists to the Communist Party, which is why they were sent in to handle and discover what happened, because they thought they would be like, oh, this didn't happen. It wasn't anything to do with, like, Dyatlov and all them making horrible mistakes Mm -hmm. and, and the construction of everything. Yeah, of course. Yeah. They sent in Legasov because Sherbina wasn't, he didn't know anything about nuclear reactors, but Legasov knew some of it. He wasn't like an expert. He was a chemist, but he knew, you know, kind of what was going on. Right. And 
luckily for the world, Lagasov and Sherbina both had a conscience along with many other scientists who, you know, they investigated what happened and they helped contain it. And otherwise, we might not know what really happened today. Mm. And they actually went and put good old Dyatlov and his pals mm. on trial. Good. This trial took place from July 7th to July 30th in 1987, the following year. So the Soviet Union could have someone to publicly blame, be like, this is their fault. Right. It's not our fault. It's their fault. Anatoly Dyatlov, Viktor Brukhanov, Nikolai Famine, Boris Rogozhin, and Alexander Kovalenko were all charged. The first three, which is, I remember I said that earlier, the first three, Dyatlov, Brukhanov, Famine, they had the highest charges. The families of Akimov, Toptanov, and Paravoschenko actually received letters saying, we would have charged your deceased family member if they didn't die. Wow. Okay. That's fucked up. Like, why would you even say anything? Fuck? Yeah. But oh my god, the this trial was actually supposed to start in March, but Nikolai Famine tried to kill himself, mm. so it was postponed for him to receive medical and mental treatment. Mm. During the trial, Famine actually tried to solely blame the operators, but Dyatlov, and maybe his one good thing, mm-hmm. said it wasn't the other men's fault or his fault. Of and it, well. Yeah, and at one point, he tried to say he wasn't even in the room. Okay, well, that's a bullshit. He was like, I wasn't there. Mm-hmm. And then they were like, we literally have everybody saying you were there. And he was like, I wasn't there. <sighs> wow. He refused for his entire life that it was not his fault. Ugh, it's crazy. Imagine lying to yourself so much that oh, literally until God. the day you die, you're like, no, I wasn't there. Like, motherfucker, <laughs> we can It was your test. You. Like, it was your test. Yeah, you were the one that was literally at the reins here. Oh yeah, my God. well, they were all found guilty and... The three men, they were sentenced to 10 years in prison. Famine actually ended up in a psychiatric hospital and was released in 1990. Dyatlov was also released the same year due to his health from mm-hmm. having bone marrow cancer, which was obviously from the radiation. Mm-hmm. And Vukanov was the last released in September 1991. He spent five years out of the 10 for good behavior. But it never, it never came up in the trial about the shortcuts taken with those RBMK reactors. Which I don't would would it have made a difference? I don't know, because it's not like they knew. Yeah, maybe if they knew, they wouldn't have made those choices. But in 1992, after another investigation, that that actually was cited as the main cause. Not that they weren't at fault, because they dismissed every safety precaution. Mm-hmm. But maybe if they knew, it wouldn't have happened. Mm. I don't know. It's I mean, tough to say. I mean, there were so many variables that yeah. all lined up for that to explode. And then, I mean, there was so much that went into it, I'm sure. But mm, I don't know. It's hard to say exactly what happened because there was so much that could have been the reason. So, yeah, it's like everything at once. And then an explode, like reactor exploded. And now you get this and people died and you can't even be there anymore. Well, you know who did get to go there? The liquidators. Oh, yeah. They had no problem them. sending them in. Basically, They were the first ones to come in to try to start cleaning up the zones. Mm -hmm. The first thing they did was build one large and several small dams along the riverbank to try to prevent the rainfall from picking up radioactive dust and washing it over into the country's main water source. Mm -hmm. Obviously, when it rains and the wind blows and stuff, it's going to kick up all that shit. And the rain's going to be poisonous. Yeah, insane. So, Like, how do you stop the rain? I know. I'm like... I don't know. I Ugh. So this is what they tried to do to try mm-hmm. to help with the situations. Yeah. So they collected any material that had been considered radioactive and they buried it. So remember when the citizens were trying to get away from the police blocks and leave through the forest? Mm-hmm. Well, that forest would be known as the Red Forest. Mm-hmm. That would be after all the pine trees uh, turned red and died as a result of the exposure from the first most deadliest cloud from the explosion. It also remains one of the most radioactive places on Earth. So they ended up burying the forest because they couldn't burn it because that would just spread contaminated particles everywhere be in the smoke going back up so they just buried it like everything else you know (laughs) literally the story everything else (laughs) god that had to have taken forever you had to chop down all the trees oh my god i couldn't imagine transport helicopters flew over the land dropping a special polymer resin in an attempt to try to seal the radioactive dust like to the ground to keep it there Mm -hmm. 70% 70% of the fallout from the smoke cloud landed on Belarus and the other 30% on Ukraine. And perhaps one of the saddest things of all one of the liquidators' jobs was also to destroy all the animals, including the pets that were left behind so they couldn't escape the zone and spread contamination. In that Voices of Chernobyl book, mm-hmm. there's a story in there about they would go and whistle 
and the dogs would come. No, my freaking heart. I'm literally about to cry. Because their fur would be radioactive and they didn't want it to run out, run through the woods, go to a different town and spread it. And they had to, they had to kill them all. So of course Cats, they dogs, came everything. Oh my and they God. came, they were house pets. So I was going to say, they were like, where's our people? There's people. They were probably so excited and only to be met with having to be put down in a not so humane way. It's horrible. And there was also like livestock and stuff. And mm. the, you know, they weren't getting food. So the dogs would kill the cats and kill the chickens. Oh my God. And after they killed them, they had to bury them. Yep, because they're mm-hmm. radioactive. Everything literally basically was buried. I mean, I guess there's nothing else you could really do in that situation. I mean, it was such a huge part, and they let it go for so long mm-hmm. that it just spread like an insane wildfire, and these it's just awful. And a lot of the equipment they used, like the helicopters, buses, mm-hmm. they're all still there because I mean, they're yeah. radioactive. It makes so sense. They, they just, just had to have there in a them. field. Oh, yeah, like that picture we found with all the masks mm-hmm. in the room. Oh, my God, it's just awful. Everything was had to be left behind because they let it go for so long. It was already so yeah. contaminated. There was no way. I have to give it to the people of the Soviet Union. They really, I don't know if today there would be the same type of camaraderie to do this for your country. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I don't mean that as anything towards, like, the military. I'm just saying people in general. Mm-hmm. Like, they were just so willing to do what it took. Right. And they did a lot to prevent further damage. And, mm-hmm. for example, oh, my God, there's so many examples. So to start, they knew the core was going to start to melt down eventually. And basically during a core meltdown, the core is so hot, it just melts through everything. Like what it's encased in, like just t- into, into the, the ground. ground. Yeah. Oh, so it God. just melt and they don't want it to get to the ground. And they believed at the time that all the materials that were burning off were creating a lava-like material, which would burn through the floor and into the bubbler pools that were underneath the reactor. And that would create a massive steam explosion if, if it went into the water, like huge. Like it would take out the whole country and beyond is what oh they thought. Oh my God. Yeah. They thought this was going to happen. And the valves to drain the bubbler pools were in a flooded building near the reactor. If you remember when they were, when Dyatlov was like, go open the valve. Like, it's not going anywhere. It's just flooded. Yeah, exactly. I yeah. mean, there was a freaking explosion. The reactor is completely yeah. gone. Like So now that building's flooded and it's just all radioactive water knee high. Mm. And they needed people who knew the facility to go in and drain the water so that lava wouldn't drip down and explode. Could you imagine? There were three volunteers who knew the facility and they all were like, we'll do it. And everybody thought this was going to be, this was a suicide mission. I mean, to me, that's what I would think. There's no way. If they came to me and was like, Mm -hmm. can you go into this radioactive water? I'd be like, fuck no. Yeah. And they they volunteered on May 4th, 1986. There were three of them. There was Boris Baranov. He was a shift supervisor. Alexei Anenenko and Valery Bezpalov. They were, those were both engineers. They went down there, and actually when they were down there, some of the lava dripped into the water, and nothing happened. Oh. Nothing. So nothing happened. So what but, they thought. Right. It was a risk. Okay. It was a risk. They it was they didn't, I mean, they don't know. We've yeah, never I dealt mean, with this before. They didn't know. Exactly. They still went down there and drained the water, and they all survived. Oh, wow. They all did survive. They all wow. said it was going to be a suicide mission. They all lived. That's crazy. Um, Boris Baranov, he passed away from a heart attack in 2005, but Alexei Anenenko is still alive today, as far as I can find. And then Valery Bespalov, as of 2019, he was alive. They lived near each other in Ukraine. What? That's mm-hmm. crazy. They that, lived, yeah. That two of them were probably still alive after literally going into... They were in there. Oh my gosh, that's crazy to me. Ugh, I know. I, that, I Literally, once you said that they were going to send people in there, I'm like, well, it is a suicide mission. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just you're, going you're right. swimming in... Reactor water. Yeah. Oh my God. They also had miners come in because they thought that core would melt into the ground and go into the earth and contaminate the water, which would, all the water in the country would be radioactive. I was going to say, I mean, these are legitimate concerns. I mean. Yeah. So they hired all these miners to come and dig a tunnel that went underneath the reactor in order to build a cooling system. And I mean, they thought, hey, there's a 50-50 chance this could happen. So do we go ahead and risk all these lives or do we take the risk that nothing comes of it? Just like the bubbler pools. Mm -hmm. And they would rather, you know, risk everybody instead of, killing everyone and this is (laughs) 
it would get so hot that the miners would work naked. Oh. <laughs> Just some naked miners. I like that. Yeah, they couldn't well they couldn't use fans since it would blow, blow up the yep. uh, blow up the dust and they would ask for fans and they would be like, no, you can't have any fans. And they were like, well, all right, well, we'll just work naked. naked so. Yeah, and there were there were about 400 miners who built that tunnel. And the molten core and reactor fuel that they were worried about burning through actually stopped after about three floors. Hmm. So they didn't need it, but they did complete it. And they filled the tunnel with concrete to strengthen the foundation below the reactor. Well, you know, again, 50-50 chance. I mean, at least it's they It's not took... a risk you want to take. Yeah, I mean, at least, and like, everything else, they were like, well, let's act, instead of everything else, mm-hmm. well, let's actually take care of this instead of shortcutting it and yeah, just hoping so it shout for the out, best. Shout out to those miners, man. For real. Thank you for saving all of us. <laughs> then one of their other main concerns was all of the graphite that was on the roof mm-hmm. because they planned to build a sarcophagus over the entire building, but they couldn't until they removed the 100 tons of radioactive debris that mm. had exploded onto the roof. Mm-hmm. I think we mentioned earlier that was like the most radioactive part. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, they tried to use robots to pick it up and like push it over back into the reactor, but they would actually quit working because of the amount of radiation. I was going to say, I mean, how could a robot withstand yeah, that and still function? Okay. Yeah, they only managed to remove maybe about 10% of what was on the roof. Wow. And the other 90% were removed by bio robots. What's a, what's a bio robot? Men. <laughs> <laughs> So it's not a robot at all. No, but that's what that's what they wow. referred them to because we couldn't withstand radiation for a certain amount of time. Not these that were, much. Yeah, these so. were some of this is what some of the liquidators did. Um, they used soldiers. They could only be on the roof for a maximum of ninety seconds since they'd be exposed to a lifetime amount of radiation. Which is something really interesting I learned from this because your body can only absorb a certain amount of radiation for your entire life. Like you can't just go ten years and the scale goes back zero like that's it so like your whole life like you can x-rays all... and everything because that's radiation so mm-hmm. you, you can only have handle... a certain which x-rays aren't like no i know but i'm saying yeah like, yeah, yeah it would include mm-hmm. all of that so your whole lifetime there's only a certain amount yeah so you okay. can you could be exposed to like your lifetime amount and you know if 20 years go by you can't just get exposed like it doesn't just go away right yeah yeah so I there'll be consequences if you have it yeah and you get exposed again like okay. yeah that's okay. it like Except Dyatlov, apparently. Oh, yeah, well, Dyatlov, oh I don't God. know, dude. But they would gear up in really heavy protective gear, like rubber gloves and boots, and they would run out to the roof with a shovel, mm. shovel up this graphite, and throw it into the giant hole. Right. Into the reactor. And they were told, don't look over into it, because then you're dead. And it took about 5,000 men to remove all of the graphite and debris from the roof. The sarcophagus design was started on May 20th, and construction was from June through November, they used a bunch of metal and concrete to build walls that covered the entire reactor. But due to the radiation, they couldn't get too close to it, so a lot of the bolts weren't fully tightened and seams weren't sealed. And it was directly built on top of the ruined building underneath, so it wasn't entirely stable. Right. But, I mean, what were you going to do? I mean, yeah, I mean, you kind of got to work with what you got after mm-hmm. something like this. So Yeah, the construction workers would actually operate in cranes that had... The cabins, like where they were in it, was lined with lead to prevent radiation. Oh my god, wow. Yeah. I mean, it was never meant to be a permanent solution, only for like 20 to 30 years. Mm -hmm. And it would also help prevent radiation from affecting the workers who were operating Reactor 3. Yeah, because the other reactors were still going on. I was about to say, excuse me? Yeah, the other three reactors were still active. Reactor 2 was shut down in 91 after a fire. Number one was shut down in 96, and in 2000, Reactor 3 was shut down. Are I, I don't I don't know. I have I don't no know. fucking words. Are you kidding me? I don't know how that even works. I don't, yeah, exactly. How? With all the, okay. Wow. I don't know. That's ridiculous. And today, they're still in the process of decommissioning the whole plant. It takes a very, very long time to decommission a nuclear power plant, and it's still going on today. I mean, yeah, especially with the... An explosion like that that just oh my god mm-hmm. wow and them still running it I just I don't I don't know that. how that works I don't know I'm gonna loss rewards for that that just wow yeah. and eventually they did build what's on it today the new safe confinement mm-hmm. um, that encases it right now it took years to build I mean it was supposed to be done around 2005 but due to delays in funding it wasn't completed until November 29th 2016 so six years ago <laughs> I six think years it's ago? 2012 girl I don't know. Where are we um, at, 2020? Sure. <laughs> but 
in order to build it, they had to use a design that they could build next to it and then slide over, which is why they designed it like an arch. Okay. Because they put these tracks in, and that way they would be able to push it over. So they could work next to it so they weren't right over okay. the radiation. Okay. And that one is supposed to last 100 years, and that cost $1.4 billion. Just for that, to try Just to cover up their mistake. But it's there, and that's what's on it today. So well, Hopefully it actually lasts, because I don't think that I can handle it. Well, if it was in 2016, we got... Um, six years. We got ninety-four years to go. See, that's your that's your department. Math, I'm not in it. But apparently, you can visit it today. I mean, not right now, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah, hopefully, don't not go right now, right now. But you know, obviously, before the war happened, you could actually go and visit it. Yeah, and you can actually even well could again. Don't go now. Fuck that. But you could actually even go into the plant with some precautions. That's crazy. To that me. blows my mind as well. Like, I had watched the show. This guy, like, traveled to weird places. Like, went to Al Capone's house. Like, all these things. So, but he went to Chernobyl on a bus. And, like, at that time, everyone was wearing hazmat suits. They would not let you. He needed to use the restroom. So, like, they had to wait until they got to a zone where it wasn't contaminated as badly to let them out for just however many minutes. Like, Mm -hmm. so the fact that you could just go into the power plant now is, blows my fucking mind. Yeah. um, The creator of the show, Craig Bazin, he went there. Wow. He he went there and he mentioned that they got to go into the plant. And I'm like, how are you going into the plant? Why would you go in there Why after you all your there? research and the show you made? What's wrong with you? Oh, my God. Craig. Like, what get, are you doing, Craig? Get the fuck out, Craig. Oh, my God. <laughs> but he was saying that when, they, if, when you left, if your levels were too high, they wouldn't let you leave. I don't know if that so, means, what if you're there permanently? I don't know. I was going to say what you mean. I you're just going to live in e- abandoned buildings? I don't know the process. I think guess they have to, like, decontaminate you or something, and you can only have a certain amount. but Before you can leave. So You can only have a certain amount of runkin. Could you imagine being like, well, I'm going on a week vacation, and you go here, and then, the, like, you come you're out. Stuck. <laughs> you're stuck. They're like, nah, fam, you ain't leaving because um, you're too radioactive, then, then you're stuck there. There's like, even people that still live there. That's insane to me too. They either return or they didn't leave. There's like 150 or something people who live there. Like that's where they used to live, and they went back. I mean, if it wasn't radioactive, sounds great to me. You have no bills to pay. You kind of just do whatever the fuck you want. The whole city's open to you. No cops. No, I don't know. I mean, it can be too bad. But the radiation Mm -hmm. makes it horrible. So don't do that. Like we were saying about Chernobyl today. (laughs) Yeah. So you could visit it. Obviously not right now because, as we all know, unless you're literally Bigfoot in his sock cave. Uh, Putin's bitch ass has started a full-on war with Ukraine this year. His troops took over the power plant in the early stages of his war, and the Russian troops were holding the few workers that were still inside the building, set in there to decommission the building. Uh, he was They were holding them hostage. There was also a scare when the power was lost at the plant that the nuclear waste wasn't going to be able to stay cooled and be safe because um, the generator that was left running wasn't supposed to last that long. <laughs> However, it was all worked out, but man... I think Ukraine has control over it now. Now, okay, I know I think, the beginning. I think they do, but they wouldn't let they wouldn't let them leave. They just make them kept because normally they change shifts. Yeah, exactly. And these people so were stuck there. Oh. Couldn't leave. Couldn't. I'm sure they weren't feeding why them. Why would because... you? Why? Yeah, let's go to war. Let me go to the fucking nuclear power plant, dude. When I seen that he was what that he was fuck? sending troops in there, I'm like, why? What is he fucking doing? Why would he? That would affect that... Russia too. Like, yeah, like. Oh my god. It makes but sense. Yeah, he literally held these I mean he's his soldiers have already said they're not being fed properly and stuff when their invasion while in Ukraine. So I'm sure these poor people mm. who were just working inside this plant already risking their lives probably with everything going on. Now they're stuck in there, no food, mm. not being just held hostage, no family, like awful. I can't even imagine. Do you remember what I said about those three divers who did the suicide mission? Yes. Well, Alexei Anenko. Yeah. That's where he had to flee. That's where he lived. Yeah. During for the war? Yeah. Oh my god! Can you imagine? You survive Uh, all that shit. You do all these crazy things, uh, and then you have to you're forced to leave your country. Like, oh my god! I the whole Chernobyl disaster itself just really makes me wonder if it wasn't for all of these issues, where would nuclear power be today? I mean, if they actually did it right and showed that it could be done properly and finished their other reactors and and had it where it needed to be. I mean, we'd probably be all running on nuclear power, but it didn't go that way. They took uh, shortcuts. They yeah. built it shittily, and it's, it's 
scared everyone. It's, hysteria well, it scared me for sure. <laughs> I I literally could do a whole episode on just nuclear power itself, and everybody has their opinions, mm-hmm. but more people die from every other type compared to nuclear power. I was gonna power, say you were telling me this. Earlier. Yeah, I was. <laughs> I don't know, you know much people, about it. So. You don't. People don't think. Like, people don't want to look up and see that. Oh. Coal and oil kill way more people every year than nuclear power because you see something like Chernobyl and you're like, ah, ah, but it, me. it doesn't happen. <laughs> okay, how many how many oil spills have there been? Like, well, according forever. to Dawn, a fuck ton. Yeah, <laughs> which can clean ducks covered in oil, but not my. Dishes. But how many okay. how many nuclear things can you think of? Chernobyl, big ones, Three Mile Island, three. You can think of three. Yeah, you can okay. think of Chernobyl, Three Mile Island, and Fukushima. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And but there's like 1,200 oil spills, or okay, coal yeah, mine explosion, fair, or people coals get coal miners getting trapped in the mines and stuff. That I am terrified of that too. That sounds scary. Oh, that'd be, oh my god! <laughs> Could you imagine? Oh my god! But it freaks me the fuck. Anyway, out. that's that's not the point of this podcast. I could do that on a whole another one, but I just wonder where we can maybe be today. Maybe we wouldn't be so reliant on other power sources and. I mean, nu- shit. Even if they handled it better after the accident, yeah, and actually took the steps instead of trying to cover it up and actually save people and help their fucking people everyone wouldn't have been so scared of what actually happened i mean it is terrifying Mm -hmm. in its own right but they handled it horribly so well ultimately i think it's important to recognize all of those men who gave their lives yeah who gave their lives and even the ones after who did what they had to do to show the world what happened exactly and I love the the little part where you listed them all. I mean, like I said, they deserve their spotlight. So, and it's it's sad that even Lagasov had to, oh, I know, it had to commit suicide for the country to even give a shit. I know. Let's dedicate this episode to all of these men and Lagasov and anybody else who we might not know about. And so I know this was a long one, very long. It was. It was a lot of research as well. Mm-hmm. Didn't want to get anything wrong. Wanted to get our facts straight again. Trying right. to find the pronunciations of everything. Oh my god! Yeah, and and to try to explain it in terms that people will understand. Oh, god. let me tell you, I was listening to a podcast and she was talking about the everything about nuclear power, and I'm like zoning out because I cannot. So I like the way that you simplified it. You know, you yeah. still explained it properly, but. Man. Even the parts I couldn't, I was like, you know what? I can't explain this part. Something happened. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, listen, I was reading some of the stuff and I'm like, uh, what? Like, yeah. I can't follow it. Again, we're not nuclear scientists, so. Nope. But we are podcasters mm-hmm. talking about yeah. nuclear science. <laughs> Did you ever think we'd be here? Could I be here talking about Chernobyl? 100% yes. Well, <laughs> On a podcast? Maybe not. <laughs> well, yeah, because you turned me down so many times. I now know. look at us. We're episode I'm number sorry. four, technically. No. Four, but this will be number three. Because it was a little syndrome short. <laughs> <laughs> but we hope that you learned something about Chernobyl. And and maybe you guys can even teach us something that we missed. Because yeah. there's some facts that we might have left there, out. There's just so much. There's so much. It was really hard. I mean, you read two separate books. I read a book. We watched a show. I mean, oh, that, you reminds, the that show. reminds me of the other book. I don't think I mentioned the other book. Oh, yeah, you there was Yeah, there was a... I know I mentioned Voices from Chernobyl, but there was another book, and this was called Midnight in Chernobyl, and that was by Adam Higginbotham. Higginbotham? Yep. Another word I don't know how to pronounce. <laughs> and uh, mine was a really long title. Uh, it was 12340, The Incredible True Story of the World's Worst Nuclear Disaster, and that was by Andrew Leatherborough. I feel like they both lined up, all mm-hmm. three of them lined up yeah. pretty well. I mean, we do our research separately. I think it, it all worked out very well. So I highly recommend any of those books, though, yeah. if you want to learn a little bit more. But we hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a long one. It was a very long one. A lot of research. And we hope to see you next Wednesday. Bye. Bye.